This is Chapter Twenty Six of A Tramp Abroad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain. The Nest of the Cuckoo Clock. The Hofkirche is celebrated for its organ concerts. All summer long, the tourists flock to that church about six o'clock in the evening and pay their franc and listen to the noise. They don't stay to hear all of it. But get up and tramp out over the sounding stone floor, meeting latecomers who tramp in in a sounding and vigorous way. This tramping back and forth is kept up nearly all the time, and is accented by the continuous slamming of the door and the coughing and barking and sneezing of the crowd. Meantime, the big organ is booming and crashing and thundering away, doing its best to prove that it is the biggest and best organ in Europe. And that a tight little box of a church is the most favorable place to average and appreciate its powers in. It is true there were some soft and merciful passages occasionally, but the tramp tramp of the tourists only allowed one to get fitful glimpses of them, so to speak. Then right away the organist would let go another avalanche. The commerce of Lucerne consists mainly in gym crackery of the souvenir sort. The shops are packed with alpine crystals, photographs of scenery, and wooden and ivory carvings. I will not conceal the fact that miniature figures of the Lion of Lucerne are to be had in them, millions of them, but they are libels upon him, every one of them. There is a subtle something about the majestic pathos of the original which the copyist cannot get. Even the sun fails to get it. Both the photographer and the carver give you a dying lion, and that is all. The shape is right, the attitude is right, the proportions are right, but that indescribable something which makes the Lion of Lucerne the most mournful and moving piece of stone in the world is wanting. The lion lies in his lair in the perpendicular face of a low cliff, for he is carved from the living rock of the cliff. His size is colossal, his attitude is noble. His head is bowed, the broken spear is sticking in his shoulder, his protecting paw rests upon the lilies of France. Vines hang down the cliff and wave in the wind, and a clear stream trickles from above and empties into a pond at the base, and in the smooth surface of the pond the lion is mirrored among the water-lilies. Around about are green trees and grass. The place is a sheltered, reposeful woodland nook, remote from noise and stir and confusion, and all this is fitting, for lions do die in such places, and not on granite pedestals in public squares fenced with fancy iron railings. The lion of Lucerne would be impressive anywhere, but nowhere so impressive as where he is. Martyrdom is the luckiest fate that can befall some people. Louis the Sixteenth did not die in his bed, consequently history is very gentle with him. She is charitable toward his failings, and she finds in him high virtues which are not usually considered to be virtues when they are lodged in kings. She makes him out to be a person with a meek and modest spirit, the heart of a female saint, and a wrong head. None of these qualities are kingly but the last. Taken together they make a character which would have fared harshly at the hands of history if its owner had had the ill luck to miss martyrdom. With the best intentions to do the right thing, he always managed to do the wrong one. Moreover, nothing could get the female saint out of him. He knew well enough that in national emergencies he must not consider how he ought to act as a man, but how he ought to act as a king. So he honestly tried to sink the man, 
and be the king. But it was a failure. He only succeeded in being the female saint. He was not instant in season, but out of season. He could not be persuaded to do a thing while it could do any good. He was iron, he was adamant in his stubbornness then, but as soon as the thing had reached a point where it would be positively harmful to do it, do it he would, and nothing could stop him. He did not do it because it would be harmful, but because he hoped it was not yet too late to achieve by it the good which it would have done if applied earlier. His comprehension was always a train or two behindhand. If a national toe required amputating, he could not see that it needed anything more than a poulticing. When others saw that the mortification had reached the knee, he first perceived that the toe needed cutting off, so he cut it off, and he severed the leg at the knee when others saw that the disease had reached the thigh. He was good and honest and well-meaning in the matter of chasing national diseases, but he never could overtake one. As a private man he would have been lovable, but viewed as a king he was strictly contemptible. His was a most unroyal career, but the most pitiable spectacle in it was his sentimental treachery to his Swiss guard on that memorable 10th of August, when he allowed those heroes to be massacred in his cause, and forbade them to shed the sacred French blood purporting to be flowing in the veins of the red-capped mob of miscreants that was raging around the palace. He meant to be kingly, but he was only the female saint once more. Some of his biographers think that upon this occasion the spirit of St. Louis had descended upon him. It must have found pretty cramped quarters. If Napoleon I had stood in the shoes of Louis XVI that day, instead of being merely a casual and unknown looker-on, there would be no lion of Lucerne now, but there would be a well-stocked communist graveyard in Paris which would answer just as well to remember the 10th of August by. Martyrdom made a saint of Mary, Queen of Scots, three hundred years ago, and she has hardly lost all of her saintship yet. Martyrdom made a saint of the trivial and foolish Marie Antoinette, and her biographers still keep her fragrant with the odor of sanctity to this day, while unconsciously proving upon almost every page, they write, that the only calamitous instinct which her husband lacked, she supplied— the instinct to root out and get rid of an honest, able, and loyal official wherever she found him. The hideous but beneficent French Revolution would have been deferred, or would have fallen short of completeness, or even might not have happened at all, if Marie Antoinette had made the unwise mistake of not being born. The world owes a great deal to the French Revolution, and consequently to its two chief promoters, Louis the poor in spirit and his queen. We did not buy any wooden images of the lion, nor any ivory or ebony or marble or chalk or sugar or chocolate ones, or even any photographic slanders of him. The truth is, these copies were so common, so universal in the shops and everywhere, that they presently became as intolerable to the wearied eye as the latest popular melody usually becomes to the harassed ear. In Lucerne, too, the wood-carvings of other sorts, which had been so pleasant to look upon when one saw them occasionally at home, soon began to fatigue us. We grew very tired of seeing wooden quails and chickens picking and strutting around clock-faces, and still more tired of seeing wooden images of the alleged chamois skipping about wooden rocks or lying upon them in family groups or peering alertly up from behind them. The first day I would have bought a hundred and fifty of these clocks if I had the money, and I did buy three, 
but on the third day the disease had run its course. I had convalesced, and was in the market once more trying to sell. However, I had no luck, which was just as well, for the things will be pretty enough, no doubt, when I get them home. For years my pet aversion had been the cuckoo clock. Now here I was, at last, right in the creature's home, so wherever I went that distressing was always in my ears. For a nervous man this was a fine state of things. Some sounds are hatefuler than others, but no sound is quite so inane and silly and aggravating as the of a cuckoo clock, I think. I bought one, and am carrying it home to a certain person, for I have always said that if the opportunity ever happened I would do that man an ill turn. What I meant was that I would break one of his legs, or something of that sort. But in Lucerne I instantly saw that I could impair his mind, and that would be more lasting, and more satisfactory every way. So I bought the cuckoo clock, and if I ever get home with it, he is my meat, as they say in the mines. I thought of another candidate, a book reviewer whom I could name if I wanted to, but after thinking it over I didn't buy him a clock. I couldn't injure his mind. We visited the two long, covered wooden bridges which span the green and brilliant Reuss just below where it goes plunging and hurrying out of the lake. These rambling, sway-back tunnels are very attractive things, with their alcoved outlooks upon the lovely and inspiriting water. They contain two or three hundred queer old pictures by old Swiss masters, old boss sign-painters who flourished before the decadence of art. The lake is alive with fishes, plainly visible to the eye, for the water is very clear. The parapets in front of the hotels were usually fringed with fishers of all ages. One day I thought I would stop and see a fish caught. The result brought back to my mind, very forcibly, a circumstance which I had not thought of before for twelve years. This one. The man who put up at Gatsby's. When my odd friend Riley and I were newspaper correspondents in Washington in the winter of '67, we were coming down Pennsylvania Avenue one night, near midnight, in a driving storm of snow, when the flash of a street lamp fell upon a man who was eagerly tearing along in the opposite direction. "'This is lucky. You are Mr. Riley, ain't you?' Riley was the most self-possessed and solemnly deliberate person in the Republic. He stopped, looked his man over from head to foot, and finally said, I am Mr. Riley. Uh, did you happen to be looking for me? Well, that's just what I was doing, said the man joyously, and it's the biggest luck in the world that I've found you. My name is Likens. I'm one of the teachers of the high school, San Francisco. As soon as I heard the San Francisco postmastership was vacant, I made up my mind to get it, and here I am. Yes, said Riley slowly. As you have remarked, Mr. Likens, uh, here you are, and— have you got it? Well, not exactly got it, but the next thing to it, I've brought a petition, signed by the superintendent of public instruction, and all the teachers, and by more than two hundred other people. Now I want you, if you'll be so good, to go around with me to the Pacific delegation, for I want to rush this thing through and get along home. If the matter is so pressing, you will prefer that we visit the delegation tonight," said Riley in a voice which had nothing mocking in it to an unaccustomed ear. "'Oh, to-night by all means. I haven't got any time to fool around. I want their promise before I go to bed. I ain't the talking kind. I'm the doing kind.' "'Yes, uh, you've come to the right place for that. Uh, when did you arrive?' Well, "'Just an hour ago.' 
when are you intending to leave for new york tomorrow evening for san francisco next morning just so what are you going to do tomorrow do uh, why i've got to go to the president with the petition and the delegation and get the appointment haven't i yes uh, very true that is correct uh, and then what executive session of the senate at two p m uh, got to get the appointment confirmed i reckon you'll grant that oh, yes yes said riley meditatively you are right again then you take the train for new york in the evening and the steamer for san francisco next morning that's it that's the way i map it out riley considered a while and then said you couldn't stay a day uh, well say two days longer oh, bless your soul no it, it's not my style i ain't a man to go fooling round i'm a man that does things i tell you the storm was raging the thick snow blowing in gusts riley stood silent apparently deep in a reverie during a minute or more then he looked up and said have you ever heard about that man who put up at gadsby's once but i see you haven't he backed mr lykins against an iron fence buttonholed him fastened him with his eye like the ancient mariner and proceeded to unfold his narrative as placidly and peacefully as if we were all stretched comfortably in a blossomy summer meadow instead of being persecuted by a wintry midnight tempest i will tell you about that man it was in jackson's time gadsby's was the principal hotel then well this man arrived from tennessee about nine o'clock one morning with a black coachman and a splendid four-horse carriage and an elegant dog which he was evidently fond of and proud of he drove up before gadsby's and the clerk and the landlord and everybody rushed out to take charge of him but he said never mind and jumped out and told the coachman to wait said he hadn't time to take anything to eat he only had a little claim against the government to collect would run across the way to the treasury and fetch the money and then get right along back to tennessee for he was in considerable of a hurry well about eleven o'clock that night he came back and ordered a bed and told them to put the horses up said he would collect the claim in the morning this was in january you understand january eighteen thirty four the third of january wednesday well on the fifth of february he stole the fine carriage and bought a cheap second-hand one said it would answer just as well to take the money home in and he didn't care for style on the eleventh of august he sold a pair of the fine horses said he'd often thought a pair was better than four to go over the rough mountain roads with where a body had to be careful about his driving and there wasn't so much of his claim but he could lug the money home with a pair easy enough on the thirteenth of december he sold another horse said two weren't necessary to drag that old light vehicle with in fact one could snatch it along faster than was absolutely necessary now that it was good solid winter weather and the roads in splendid condition on the seventeenth of february eighteen thirty five he sold the old carriage and bought a cheap second-hand buggy said a buggy was just the trick to skim along mushy slushy early spring roads with and he had always wanted to try a buggy on those mountain roads anyway on the first of august he sold the buggy and bought the remains of an old sulky said he just wanted to see those green tennesseans stare and gawk when they saw him comin' a rippin' along in a sulky didn't believe they'd ever heard of a sulky in their lives well on the twenty-ninth of august he sold his colored coachman 
said he didn't need a coachman for a sulky, wouldn't be room enough for two in it anyway, and, besides, it wasn't every day that Providence sent a man a fool who was willing to pay nine hundred dollars for such a third-rate negro as that, been wanting to get rid of the creature for years, but didn't like to throw him away. Eighteen months later, that is to say, on the 15th of February, 1837, he sold the sulky and bought a saddle, said horseback riding was what the doctor had always recommended him to take, and dogged if he wanted to risk his neck going over those mountain roads on wheels in the dead of winter, not if he knew himself. On the ninth of April he sold the saddle, said he wasn't going to risk his life with any perishable saddle girth that ever was made over a rainy, miry April road, while he could ride bareback and know and feel he was safe, always had despised to ride on a saddle anyway. On the twenty-fourth of April he sold his horse, said, I'm just fifty-seven to-day, hale and hearty. It would be a pretty howdy-do for me to be wasting such a trip as that, and such weather as this, on a horse, when there ain't anything in the world so splendid as a tramp on foot through the fresh spring woods and over the cheery mountains, to a man that is a man, and I can make my dog carry my claim in a little bundle, anyway, when it's collected. So to-morrow I'll be up bright and early, make my little old collection, and mosey off to Tennessee, on my own hind legs, with a rousing good-bye to Gadsby's. On the 22nd of June he sold his dog, said, "'Turn a dog, anyway, where you're just starting off on a rattling bully pleasure tramp through the summer woods and hills. Perfect nuisance! Chases the squirrels! Barks at everything! Goes a-capering and splattering around in the fords! Man can't get any chance to reflect and enjoy nature!' and I'd a blame sight rather carry the claim myself. It's a mighty sight safer. A dog's mighty uncertain in a financial way, always noticed it. Well, good-bye, boys. Last call. I'm off for Tennessee with a good leg and a gay heart. Early in the morning. There was a pause and a silence, except the noise of the wind and the pelting snow. Mr. Likens said impatiently, Well? Riley said, Well, that was thirty years ago. Very well, very well. What of it? I'm great friends with that old patriarch. He comes every evening to tell me good-bye. I saw him an hour ago. He's off for Tennessee early tomorrow morning, as usual. Said he calculated to get his claim through and be off before night-owls like me have turned out of bed. The tears were in his eyes. He was so glad he was going to see his old Tennessee and his friends once more. Another silent pause. The stranger broke it. Is that all? That is all. Well, for the time of night and the kind of night, it seems to me the story was full long enough, but what's it all for? Oh, nothing in particular. Well, where's the point of it? Oh, there isn't any particular point to it. Only if you are not in too much of a hurry to rush off to San Francisco with that post-office appointment, Mr. Likens, I'd advise you to put up at Gadsby's for a spell, and take it easy. Good-bye. God bless you." So saying, Riley blandly turned on his heel and left the astonished schoolteacher standing there, a musing and motionless snow-image shining in the broad glow of the street-lamp. He never got that post-office. To go back to Lucerne and its fishers, I concluded, after about nine hours waiting, that the man who proposes to tarry till he sees something hook one of those well-fed and experienced fishes will find it wisdom to put up at Gadsby's and take it easy, 
it is likely that a fish has not been caught on that lake pier for forty years but no matter the patient fisher watches his cork there all the day long just the same and seems to enjoy it one may see the fisher loafers just as thick and contented and happy and patient all along the seine at paris but tradition says that the only thing ever caught there in modern times is a thing they don't fish for at all the recent dog and the translated cat end of chapter twenty six